Section 24 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard Section 24 Abraham Lincoln, Part 1 the world will little note, no long remember, what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honoured dead we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Speech at Gettysburg No, dearie, I do not think my childhood differed much from that of other good healthy country youngsters. I have heard folks say, the childhood has its sorrows and all that, but the sorrows of country children do not last long. The young rustic goes out and tells his troubles to the birds and flowers, and the flowers nod in recognition, and the robin that sings from the top of a tall poplar tree when the sun goes down says plainly it has sorrows of its own, and understands. I feel a pity for all those folks who were born in a big city, and thus got cheated out of their childhood. Zealous ash-box inspectors in gilt braid, prying policemen with clubs and signs reading Keep Off the Grass, are woeful things to greet the gaze of little souls fresh from God. Last summer, six fresh airs were sent out to my farm from the eighth ward. Half an hour after their arrival, one of them, a little girl five years old, who had constituted herself mother of the party, came rushing into the house, exclaiming, Say, Mr. Jimmy Driscoll, he is walking on the grass. I will remember the first keep-off-the-grass sign I ever saw. It was in a printed book. It wasn't exactly a sign, only a picture of a sign, and the single excuse I could think of for such a notice was that the field was full of bumblebee nests, and the owner, being a good man and kind, did not want barefoot boys to add bee stings to stone bruises. And I never now see one of those signs, but that I glance at my feet to make sure that I have shoes on. Given the liberty of the country, the child is very near to nature's heart. He is brother to the tree and calls all the dumb, growing things by name. He is sublimely superstitious. His imagination, as yet untouched by dissolution, makes good all that earth lacks, and habited in a healthy body, the soul sings and soars. In childhood, magic and mystery lie close around us. The world in which we live is a panorama of constantly unfolding delights, our faith in the unknown is limitless, and the words of Job uttered in mankind's early morning fit our wandering mood. Quote, he stretcheth out the north over empty space, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. End quote. I am old, dearie, very old. In my childhood, much of the state of Illinois was a prairie, where wild grass waved and bowed before the breeze like the tide of a summer sea. 
I remember when relatives rode miles and miles in springless farm wagons to visit cousins, taking the whole family and staying two nights and a day, when books were things to be read, when the beaver and the buffalo were not extinct, when wild pigeons came in clouds that shadowed the sun, when steamboats ran on the Sangamon, when Bishop Simpson preached, when hell was a place, not a theory, and heaven a locality whose fortunate inhabitants had no work to do, when Chicago newspapers were ten cents each, when cotton cloth was fifty cents a yard, and my shirt was made from a flower sack with the legend Extra XXX across my proud bosom, and just below the words in flaming red, quote, warranted fifty pounds, end quote. The mornings usually opened with smothered protests against getting up, for country folks then were extremists in the matter of, quote, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, end quote. We hadn't much wealth, nor were we very wise, but we had health to burn. But aside from the unpleasantness of early morning, the day was full of possibilities, of curious things to be found in the barn and under spreading gooseberry bushes, or, if it rained, the garret was in Alsatia unexplored. The evolution of the individual mirrors the evolution of the race. In the morning of the world, man was innocent and free, but when self-consciousness crept in, and he possessed himself of that disturbing motto, Know thyself, he took a fall. Yet knowledge usually comes to us with a shock, just as the mixture crystallizes when the chemist gives the jar a tap. We grow by throes. I well remember the day when I was put out of my Eden. My father and mother had gone away in the one-horse wagon, taking the baby with them, leaving me in care of my elder sister. It was a stormy day, and the air was full of fog and mist. It did not rain very much, only in gusts, but great leaden clouds chased each other angrily across the sky. It was very quiet there in the little house on the prairie, except when the wind came and shook the windows and rattled at the doors. The morning seemed to drag and wouldn't pass, just out of contrariness, and I wanted it to go fast, because in the afternoon my sister was to take me somewhere, but where I did not know, but that we should go somewhere was promised again and again. As the day wore on, we went up into the little garret and strained our eyes across the stretching prairie to see if someone was coming. There had been much rain, for on the prairie there was always too much rain or else too little. It was either drought or flood. Dark swarms of wild ducks were in all the ponds. V-shaped flocks of geese and brands screamed overhead, and down in the slough cranes danced a solemn manoeuvre. Again and again we looked for the coming something, and I began to cry, fearing we had been left there, forgotten of fate. At last we went out by the barn, and, with much boosting, I climbed to the top of the haystack, and my sister followed, and still we watched. "'There they come,' explained my sister. "'There they come,' I echoed, and clapped two red chapped hands for joy. Away, across the prairie, miles and miles away, was a winding string of wagons, a dozen, perhaps, one right behind another. We watched until we could make out our own white horse, Bob, and then we slid down the hickory pole that leaned against the stack and made our way across the spongy sod to the burying ground that stood on a knoll half a mile away. We got there before the procession and saw a great hole with square corners dug in the ground. 
it was half full of water and a man in bare feet with trousers rolled to his knees was working industriously to bail it out the wagons drove up and stopped and out of one of them four men lifted a long box and set it down beside the hole where the man still bailed and dipped the box was opened and in it was si johnson si lay very still and his face was very blue and his clothes were very black save for his shirt which was very white and his hands were folded across his breast just so and held awkwardly in the stiff fingers was a little new testament we all looked at the blue face and the women cried softly the men took off their hats while the preacher prayed and then we sang quote, there'll be no more parting there end quote. the lid of the box was nailed down lines were taken from the harness of one of the teams standing by and were placed around the long box and it was lowered with a splash into the hole then several men seized spades and the clots fell with clatter and echo the men shoveled very hard filling up the hole and when it was full and heaped up they patted it all over with the backs of their spades everybody remained until this was done and then we got into the wagons and drove away nearly a dozen of the folks came over to our house for dinner including the preacher and they all talked of the man who was dead and how he came to die only two days before this man si johnson stood in the doorway of his house and looked out at the falling rain it had rained for three days so that they could not plough and si was angry besides this his two brothers had enlisted and gone away to the war and left him all the work to do he did not go to war because he was a quote, copperhead end quote and as he stood there in the doorway looking at the rain he took a chew of tobacco and then he swore a terrible oath and ere the swear words had escaped from his lips there came a blinding flash of lightning and the man fell all in a heap like a sack of oats and he was dead whether he died because he was a copperhead or because he took a chew of tobacco or because he swore i could not exactly understand i waited for a convenient lull in the conversation and asked the preacher why the man died and he patted me on the head and told me it was quote, the vengeance of god end quote, and that he hoped i would grow up and be a good man and never chew tobacco nor swear the preacher is alive now he is an old old man with long white whiskers and i never see him but that i am tempted to ask for the exact truth as to why si johnson was struck by lightning yet i suppose it was because he was a copperhead all copperheads chewed tobacco and swore and that his fate was merited no one but the living copperheads in that community doubted that was an eventful day to me like men whose hair turns from black to gray in a night i had left babyhood behind at a bound and the problems of the world were upon me clamoring for solution there was war in the land when it began i did not know but that it was something terrible i could guess i thought of it all the rest of the day and dreamed of it at night many men had gone away and every day men in blue straggled by all going south forever south and all the men straggling along that road stopped to get a drink at a well drawing the water with the sweep and drinking out of the bucket and squirting a mouthful of water over each other they looked at my father's creaking doctor's sign and sang old mother hubbard she went to the cupboard they all sang that they were very jolly 
just as though they were going to a picnic. Some of them came back that way a few years later, and they were not so jolly, and some there were who never came back at all. Freight trains passed southward, blew with men in the cars, and on top of the cars, and in the caboose, and on the cowcatcher, always going south, and never north. For down south were many rebels, and all along the way south were copperheads, and they all wanted to come north and kill us, so soldiers had to go down there and fight them. And I marveled much that if God hated copperheads, as our preachers said he did, why he didn't send lightning and kill them just in a second, as he had Cy Johnson. And then all that would have to be done would be to send for a doctor to see that they were surely dead, and a preacher to pray, and the neighbors would dress them in their best Sunday suits of black, folding their hands very carefully across their breasts. Then we would bury them deep, filling in the dirt and heaping it up, patting it all down very carefully with the back of a spade, and then go away and leave them until Judgment Day. Copperheads were simply men who hated Lincoln. The name came from copperhead snakes, which are worse than rattlers, for rattlers rattle and give warning. A rattler is an open enemy, but you never know that a copperhead is around until he strikes. He lies low in the swale and watches his chance. He is the worstest snake that am. It was Abe Lincoln of Springfield who was fighting the rebels that were trying to wreck the country and spread red ruin. The copperheads were wicked folks at the north who sided with the rebels. Society was divided into two classes those who favoured Abe Lincoln, and those who told lies about him. All the people I knew and loved, loved Abe Lincoln. I was born at Bloomington, Illinois, through no choosing of my own, and Bloomington is further famous as being the birthplace of the Republican Party. When a year old, I persuaded my parents to move seven miles north to the village of Hudson, that then had five houses, a church, a store, and a blacksmith shop. Many of the people I knew knew Lincoln, for he used to come to Bloomington several times a year on the circuit to try cases, and at various times made speeches there. When he came, he would tell stories at the Ashley House, and when he was gone, these stories would be repeated by everybody. Some of these stories must have been peculiar, for I once heard my mother caution my father not to tell any more, quote, Lincoln stories, end quote, at the dinner table when we had company. And once, Lincoln gave a lecture at the Presbyterian Church on the, quote, progress of man, end quote, when no one was there but the preacher, my Aunt Hannah, and the sexton. My uncle Elihu and Aunt Hannah knew Abe Lincoln well. So did Jesse Fell, James C. Conklin, Judge Davis, General Orme, Leonard Sweat, Dick Yates, and lots of others I knew. They never called him, quote, Mr. Lincoln, end quote but it was always Abe, or Old Abe, or just plain Abe Lincoln. In that newly settled country, we always called folks by their first names, especially when you liked them. And when they spoke the name Abe Lincoln, there was something in the voice that told of confidence, respect, and affection. Once when I was at my Aunt Hannah's, Judge Davis was there, and I sat on his lap. Years afterward, I boasted to Robert Ingersoll that when I wore trousers buttoned to a calico waist, I used to sit on the lap of David Davis, and Colonel Ingersoll laughed and said, Now I know you are a liar, 
for David Davis didn't have any lap. The only thing about the interview I remember was that the judge really didn't have any lap to speak of. After Judge Davis had gone, Aunt Hannah said, You must always remember Judge Davis, for he is the man who made Abe Lincoln. And when I said, Why, I thought God made Lincoln, they all laughed. After a little pause, my inquiring mind caused me to ask, Who made Judge Davis? And Uncle Elihu answered, Abe Lincoln. Then they all laughed more than ever. Many volunteers were being called for. Neighbors and neighbors' boys were enlisting, going to the support of Abe Lincoln. Then one day, my father went away too. Many of the neighbors went with us to the station when he took the four o'clock train, and we all cried, except mother. She didn't cry until she got home. My father had gone to Springfield to enlist as a surgeon. In three days, he came back and told us he had enlisted and was to be assigned his regiment in a week and go at once to the front. He was always a kind man, but during that week, when he was waiting to be told where to go, he was very gentle and more kind than ever. He told me I must be the man of the house while he was away, and take care of my mother and sisters, and not forget to feed the chickens every morning. And I promised. At the end of the week, a big envelope came from Springfield, marked in the corner, official. My mother would not open it and so it lay on the table until the doctor's return. We all looked at it curiously, and my eldest sister gazed on it long with her lacklustre eye, and then rushed from the room with her check apron over her head. When my father rode up on horseback, I ran to tell him that the envelope had come. We all stood breathless and watched him break the seals. He took out the letter and read it silently and passed it to my mother. I have the letter before me now, and it says... Quote, the department is still of the opinion that it does not care to accept men having varicose veins, which make the wearing of bandages necessary. Your name, however, has been filed, and should we be able to use your services, will advise. End quote. Then we were all very glad about the varicose veins, and I'm afraid I went out and boasted to my playfellows about our family possessions. It was not so very long after that there was a big meeting in the, quote, timber, end quote. People came from all over the county to attend it. The chief speaker was a man by the name of Ingersoll, a colonel in the army who was back home for just a day or two on furlough. Folks said he was the greatest orator in Peoria County. Early in the morning, the wagons began to go by our house, and all along the four roads that led to the grove, we could see great clouds of dust that stretched away for miles and miles, and told that the people were gathering by the thousands. They came in wagons, and on horseback, carrying babies. Two boys on one horse were common sights, and there were various four-horse teams with wagons filled with girls, all dressed in white, carrying flags. All our folks went. My mother fastened the back door of her house, with a bolt on the inside, and then locked the front door with a key, and hid the key under the doormat. End of section 24